You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles, the projectionist asked me. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski. We're recording this, of course, before Yom Kippur, but of course you people are going to be hearing this post the the Day of Atonement holiday. But Yitzchak and I were talking today about memories of our parents uh, and grandparents. One of the things that Yom Kippur brings up in most Jews is the sense of who isn't here with us. and. Yitzchak was mentioning to me about his dad, and it was interesting that that his dad's influences, especially as he felt, had shaped very much a lot of his his tastes and the type of films and television programs that he liked. He, he mentioned to me that his dad had a distaste for everyone's favorite lovable redhead, Lucille Ball. It's interesting, Yitzchak, that my grandmother, who in many ways was the reason why I spoke Yiddish at home, was in order for me to be able to converse with her. My father and I also spoke Yiddish, but my father was such a reticent man and was not really so forthcoming about things. He was very, uh, very no-nonsense. But my grandmother, who I spoke Yiddish to, would always say to me, Mach de Lucy, Mach de Lucy. In other words, turn on the television and let me see Lucille Ball in one of her iterations, whether it was the original 1950s, I love Lucy, or... The 1960s uh, Lucy programs, which were, I believe, The Lucy Show, Here's Lucy, film buffs will know that the Desilu Studios that produced uh, not a, you know a number of programs like The Untouchables, and Yitzhak was mentioning before, of course, he's very thankful that they were the ones that took on producing the three seasons of Star Trek. They're also producing. I'm not, I'm not even such a big Star Trek fan, but I, I, I recognize the uh... the significance that Desi. Right, I don't know how much Lucille Ball was involved in it, but I think it's interesting that people will know that the actual 
studio itself was on the same lot and used the same buildings, of course, of radio pictures, later known as RKO. So RKO, which, of course, had a very um, a glorious history, uh, wonderful films, uh, the, that Many of those original sound stages eventually became places that uh, the Desilu television productions uh, were mounted. So basically, this was just a place for Lucy to act as she did at the end of the 50s and throughout the 60s, not only as a television queen, but also as an administrator. And, and, and we've seen in the past couple of years, there's been a number of documentaries and biopics starring various actors and actresses. You know, I, I think it was Nicole Kidman uh, and Xavier Bardem playing Lucy and Desi. You know, there's been just a, a tremendous amount of rekindling of interest. But my point, though, is, is that, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I helped my grandmother by making sure that she could see this program that she loved. My mother would then sometimes come in and wipe her brow and sit down and watch. Lucy was very loved in my home. It's interesting. And, and of course, my mother and grandmother are no longer here with us. It's interesting that your father who is, has passed away, was actually, a, he actually didn't care for Lucy, even though she was all over the airwaves. And I, I think you shared with me that because of that, it was hard for you, although Lucy was everywhere, it was hard for you to actually be the same type of expert you are in Dobie Gillis or Gilligan's Island as you are as, as far as Lucy goes. And she doesn't ring your bell to, just to, uh, to, catch a phrase of a, the famous friendship song that she did with Ethel as they were tearing each other's clothes off. I don't know if you remember that one. But I, I have to tell you that that as I have grown older, and although my wife, is a, she loves watching uh, Lucy, the show of the I Love Lucy program, she, she, nobody, uh, none of us can stand watching any of the later ones. I like the later ones better because of Gail Gordon. So Gail Gordon, of course, was uh, her co-star in a number of the the sixties iterations. I remember him most famously as Mister Mooney, the head of the bank, where Lucy worked as some sort of secretary or something with that she did over there. Again, to me, you know, even when I was a, a, a wee lad, it was always interesting to me to contrast the fifties Lucy, the sixties Lucy. Uh, eventually, of course, Vivian Vance was asked to join the cast of the 60s uh, sitcom. And she had, of course, a number of of uh, uh, stipulations before she was willing to do this. It's been quite well documented that Lucy was self-conscious about the way she looked. She wanted someone plump and not even nearly as attractive as her, despite the fact they were supposed to be these average housewives in Manhattan. Uh, but she wanted to make sure that Vivian Vance, of course, played Ethel Mertz, would not be as attractive as her. Her dresses would never match hers. So Vivian, when she came back in the 60s, said, look, first of all, you know, I'm going to be known as Vivian. And she had very strict uh, stipulations. Again, it really was built. Again, I, I think our friend Tom Shabilla would agree with us that much of the reason Lucy was still in the top 10 in Nielsen ratings had to do with the way she had captured the hearts of the parents and children in the 1950s, and she could almost do no wrong. She still was able to get away with some of the physical 
comedy. She was clearly very, very gifted. And she was also able in her 1950s sitcom to really push the envelope in terms of how these programs would be filmed. She made sure that there was a, a number of cameras. Each uh, episode is not like the old kinescope uh, pieces that we have, of course, like of the honeymooners and other things, uh, things that we have from Uncle Milty. They are preserved on actual uh, film. Was, was that the first show that was actually recorded on film? I believe so. I know there was something that she and that was something that, of course, was crucial, not only for the success of that program, because she understood already with her business sense that not only would that make an enjoyable viewing for the person sitting at home, it would also, she recognized in terms of syndication, allow the program to live way beyond the years that it was produced. It was a program that at the time was an immense hit. It was it was a gargantuan hit. Uh, in many ways was a trailblazing program. It's It's been documented, her insistence that her husband, who was a number of years her junior, Desi Arnaz, would actually play the lead. And here you have a, I guess it's not biracial, but you definitely have an, a, a person married to someone from an ethnic minority, someone whose English was very clearly not flawless. And this was also used as part of the gag. The writers on that program, of course, had written for her in uh, on, on her radio show, my favorite husband, so Jess Oppenheimer and some of the other writers carried over, and they, of course, were extremely gifted. This ensemble was extremely well-loved, and I understand why. Uh, it, it, you cannot compare it to Dick Van Dyke or Mary Tyler Moore or any of the more sophisticated programming of the 60s, but clearly all television sitcoms that have lasting power owe a debt to uh, I Love Lucy. And again, it, it, it didn't break the fourth wall at all, like Benny did, or even Mr. Peepers, or any of these other programs. Now, all that being said, I can't stand watching it. Part of it is because I know it so well. Part of it is because I think her character is a a character that, although you you your heart goes out to her, is basically, and I think you said this to me off pod earlier, quite annoying i mean here's the basic thing is the joke is she's the bigger movie star she was the one who had a career she's the one who had been a glamour girl in hollywood she's the one who had actually had fame and was well known her husband was the one that you know had you know was this cuban band leader but here in the program things are reversed uh, he's the one who has openings to hollywood he's the one that is in show business and she during the whole run of the series, is trying to promote herself. I, I think it's that dynamic that rubs the most uncomfortably, because uh, even though you said that her, her shows in the 60s were less appreciated, I, can, I, I find those more enjoyable where she's playing a single woman as opposed to in I Love Lucy where she's a second banana to Desi and she's always whining and crying about, you know, Desi won't let her be in the, the show. Ricky, Ricky won't let her be in the show. I think it's been documented, Yitzchuk, that, that Desi, despite the fact that his mastery of English was not complete, he knew what he was a very savvy 
controller. And he made sure that the episodes were written in a way that Desi doesn't end up being the butt of the joke. In other words, even right. though Ricky can sometimes also be flustered, generally it's Lucy who learns the lesson. Generally, Lucy yeah. is is underneath. Lucy's the one who has to cry. Lucy's the one that has to recognize that maybe she can't go as far as she thinks. And uh, in that way, you know, you're right. Lucy is not an image for women empowerment uh, in any way because, you know, she's she her harebrained schemes always end up putting her in this, you know, in this in this incredible place. Now, you can you can tell that the audience that that was watching this was really very, very they were really cracking up. They were really very, very amused by her antics. And there's no question about it. She, in a way, tapped in. We talked about silent film last week. She could have made it in the silence. Uh, well, the other the other uh, one that I remember Lucy shows, I think one of the best was where she teamed up with Harpo Marx. We know that in 1938, she actually starred together with the Marx Brothers. Uh, she's actually second bill after the Marx Brothers, before Ann Miller, the incredible Ann Miller, who, of course, is uh, most people would say is probably the most impressive uh, woman dancer in Hollywood history. But she was in that film, and she got to know the Marx Brothers, and she was she was very friendly with them. So Harpo did her, you know, it was a toyva. The truth is, Yitzchuk, if you remember, the writers of I Love Lucy really didn't know what to do with the program, especially after Little Ricky was born. You know, that, of course, was, in my mind, probably the most real, incredible moment where, you know, Lucy is pregnant and she's uh, trying to tell uh, Desi about this. In that scene where she is trying to hint to and tell Ricky, it's one. I think it's probably one of the best episodes. I could probably watch that again. And you can see the tears are so real on Lucy's face acting this because it was difficult for her to have children. Uh, she had two, of course, Desi Arnaz Jr. and Lucy Arnaz. But it, having children came difficult to her. She had them uh, in her in her 40s. And when little Ricky was born, you know, the it, it actually aired the night that Lucy was having a cesarean. And it actually aired the exact same night that Lucille Ball actually delivered the child was the same episode of Lucy going to the hospital. And as you know, that has been replicated as well in so many other television programs. One that I remember was Full House. And that really stuck with me when uh, Lori Laughlin was now uh, in prison and she was trying to I'm playing Aunt Becky, and she's telling Jesse that uh, she's trying to say that they're going to have a baby. So she brings baby corn and baby carrots to try to hint to him that she's going to have a baby. That she's having a baby. Not not only revealing that you're pregnant, which I think happened in many, many old Hollywood films, but I was talking about the rush to the hospital and, and, and the father forgetting everything. I'm saying almost every sitcom and dramedy has the, oh, we forgot the suitcase, we forgot her. Again, Lucy, in, in, in that program, the classic Little Ricky is Born, they forget Lucy herself. In other words, they 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 run out of the apartment, Fred, Ethel, and, and, and Ricky, and they leave Lucy. 
basically, again, those are classic, incredible touches. I, I think that those, all of those types of shows, they colored an idea that didn't happen to me. You know, I, I never, I didn't feel as like, uh, you know, I, there was an expectation, I think, that, you know, you should be somewhat flustered and like, you know, I'd be very... You know, right. again, it's it really ties in to the Mr. Mysterious, incredible nature of childbirth. And you're right. It's such a shock that every like, like nobody can understand what's going on. It's so amazing that you you are sort of reduced to a to a to a to a, a blustering idiot. And you don't even know what's happening. You're right. It has to do again with how delicate the subject matter was. This became classic sitcom recipe. Let's get it's a, it's if it's about married life, let's introduce a baby into it. Introduce a baby, we're gonna have a crazy hospital scene, right? Are we gonna have it? We need to now get a child actor. And of course, that's what they did as well. It wasn't obviously wasn't the actual Desi Arnaz Jr., but it became stale. They needed to do something. They had to travel to Europe. And of course, there were episodes in Europe. They had to travel to uh, to the West Coast because Ricky was making a movie and of course that gave bill holden a chance uh to be on the show they gave a chance for john wayne to be on the show and that really shows you it's like how damn popular this program was everybody wanted on it they didn't have to beg john wayne to come on the duke wanted to be on the show because it it, it increased his uh a presence in america's consciousness but they been moved to connecticut because there was too little that could happen within apartment life. So even though the program, in a way, is quite stable, you can see the fissures inside of it. You can see that what is going to happen, what's going on, and 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 the necessity, of course, of uh, unnaturally having Fred and Ethel come along with them. It was clear that you cannot have just Ricky and and Lucy and and remember they didn't have the money to bring in loads of side characters although there were a number of famous guest stars of course Tennessee Ernie Ford <laughs> had an incredible um i think he was on twice on the show uh as Lucy's cousin from Tennessee and and there were a number of other uh, stars who made their perhaps television debut Hayden Rourke did a great job on there, of course, known as May, uh, 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 from uh, I Dream of Jeannie. Many, many character actors uh, found their way into I Love Lucy, and, and from there they went on to greater careers. But I think what we want to, again, this is a very big introduction. This is sort of like but we're getting to the real meat of what we're going to want to talk about is that Genokshine. We all know about how great I Love Lucy is. You can hate it it's significant. Let's talk about Lucy in a way that isn't as, in my mind, as uh, grating on the eyes and ears. Uh, a Lucy that's not just whining and demanding. A Lucy that, in a way, is on her way up, but also showing the comic chops that eventually became her bread and butter. And I want to talk about, uh, I know... You mentioning uh, that, and I think in terms of time, she already starred with uh, three of your favorites, the Three Stooges, in a short called The Three Little Pigskins. 
I believe it was 1934, so it was one of the earlier Columbia shorts. I think it was one of the first Columbia shorts. And Lucille Wolf gets the first billing after the students, meaning there's three women leads in this episode in this short, and Lucille Ball is listed there as, as one of the, as the first of the three mentioned there. I think that the film, she'd pushed herself into Hollywood She'd been uncredited and seen in a number of different films. Yeah, because clearly, you know, she she was very much as unlike what happens in, you know, I Love Lucy. And this is part of why I think, you know, you know, she was so vain in the 1960s that she was known as a very pretty up and coming girl. She was her hair was not red, of course, naturally, but she was clearly, even without the distinctive hair, she was someone that she had an attractive face and figure. She was not overweight. She was always very self-conscious about her teeth. And of course, you know, like many uh, Hollywood starlets, uh, they capped their teeth. Judy Garland, of course, very famous and others. So her natural teeth were somewhat crooked. And she didn't have exactly the aquiline, beautiful sort of nose. But, you know, so, but she was definitely a looker, as it was called, a dolly, a looker. And, and therefore, in this Three Stooges film, she's some of the girls that are very into football players. Because as we've spoken about, college football uh, in the 1920s and 1930s was really almost the national sport to rival baseball and horse racing and boxing. It was a very, it was very popular. There were scandals involved, of course, in betting. Uh, the Marx Brothers had their own uh, movie about uh, football. And the Stooges also, this was their entry into the football pastiche in the 1930s. Uh, the great team, the great college team was coached by Newt Rockney in Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. The offensive line, they were known as the Four Horsemen. They were the ones who were able to uh, guard the quarterback and allow the, uh, the, 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 the teams to score. So I think the Stooges get mistaken for being the star offensive linemen, and they end up, but what are they really? They were three, uh, three beggars. So uh, well, the, way, the way it happened at the beginning of the film is that there's someone who he owns a professional football team, and he's making some kind of a bet or something. He's trying, he's hoping that he can get the three horsemen, as is in this film, the four horsemen of real life, as based on uh, to give up their amateur status so they would play for him to replace his three players who got drunk and got drunk driving and got into a bad accident. And when they, when they uh, asked one of the girls, Lucy asked, what's the amateur status? They said, well, that's a big political party. She said, oh, a party? Can we go to the party? So then what, what happened was, was that so they were asked to advertise the game, and they're wearing football uniforms while they're advertising the game. And then one of these ladies, her hat falls off into the street, and they go to rescue the hat, and she, she assumes that they are the three horsemen, and they're like, she's like he's going to get them to come play for their professional team. Right. So in other words, basically, this was what was happening. These, uh, you know, unlike recent rulings uh, by the Supreme Court about this whole amateur college status, in those days, the line of demarcation was very clear, and college players 
couldn't be paid. They were technically students who were going to classes. And these startup professional leagues that were basically considered grimy and second rate, and they were the ones that were trying to pilfer these players to pay them to go play for them in 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 the in 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 the prof- in the professional ranks. So Lucy plays a gun mall here. She plays one of the girls and she has a little repartee with the stooges there, but it's clearly a comedy. Does Lucy she doesn't really engage in any pratfalls and any of the physical stuff that she was later famous for. I I not, not that I recall. I mean part of the story was that they when they were rescuing the hat uh a a, a uh cleaning truck sprayed them with water and so they had to come back and come to the girls' apartment to change their clothes. So the boys put on the women's pajamas, very fluffy women's pajamas, robes with, with fur on them. And then uh, Mo and, and Larry are squirting uh, seltzer at each other. I would say, uh, to me, the, the, the greatest part of three little pigskins is the uniforms that they end up wearing and the numbers that they have. Uh, Curly has a question mark. Larry is a half. <laughs> and Mo is as, as the, uh, the chemical equation for water, H2O with a two next to the oxygen. So you basically have a, uh, and, and of course the helmets are somewhere, you know, Curly's helmet looks like something that a cab driver on the 46th in Lexington might be driving. So it, it, you know, again, it's stooge material. And again, the fact that Lucy is in it uh, means that she was on her way up. Uh, she was someone that would be noticed. This was a short that people would watch before the main feature. And this is what you did in order, just like people wanted to get on the Lucy show, in order to propel their careers, this was something that Lucy did. It's interesting that, again, she did a big jump. Like I said, she was already the second bill in the Marx Brothers film two years later in room service. and. There she was two years after that, four years after this brilliant uh, stooge comedy uh, in a uh, 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 outing directed by Ben Stoloff. It was a vehicle for Lucy. And the idea was that they would make a series of films based on this character. She already was famous enough that people recognized her as a movie star. And she plays a a movie star in this film. Her name in, in in the film is... Annabelle Allison. And the film is called The Affairs of Annabelle. The star, though, the one who had star billing was Jack Oakey. Now, Jack Oakey was uh, uh, an actor that I, I actually praised his performance in Thieves Highway. You might remember that film that we talked about with Richard Conte. But, you know, we could have actually mentioned Oakey in our program two weeks ago, Yitzchak, as sort of a rotund pushy fat guy he wasn't exactly you know uh he wasn't of the girth of of oliver hardy or 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 john candy but he was a similar candy did a lot of oaky like stuff uh oaky oaky in many ways you know was a pushy over aggressive handler uh, in, in many ways a very popular comedian uh when he was a star i think th- i think these films you know was sort of his last great period. By the time he made Thieves Highway, he was really, wasn't hardly working at all. And uh, he did a great job in that role, if you remember, playing the, uh, his name was Slob, and he was playing a sort of a uh, a real 
low-life truck driver who discovers that he has a heart and a conscience at the end of that of that of that film. But here, this is totally a one-note laugh for Oki. Uh, Oki plays a press agent of the movie star Annabelle Allison, played by Lucille Ball. And again, it really it's meant to be a satire on Hollywood. But it really, it's not like the bad and the beautiful. It doesn't really, in a way, really give you real insight in the way they made movies and what was going on. There's not a lot of depth to it at all. And it really has so many plot holes that it doesn't make any sense. But basically, the the idea is, is that Jack Oakey is her press agent, Annabelle's press agent. And in order for the movies, since they were there's so many of them coming out, Lanny Morgan, the press agent, Jack Oakey, needs to put Annabelle into as many crazy situations in order to highlight the movie that's going to be similar to the situation that she's in. She's going to be in a prison movie. Let's get her arrested and be in prison. Supposedly overnight, she ends up having to stay in prison for a month. And the beginning of the film, you see her in a prison because of this uh, press agent's ideas. And then morphs into another movie that they're making, a movie about uh, a, a sort of a screwball comedy where a maid falls in love with her rich employer. And it's a sort of a, a, a romantic comedy supposedly being made with this movie star, Annabelle Allison slash Lucille Ball. So in order for her to get this role, her press agent calls a home that has why this home out of all homes in California. It's not explained at all, but they have a black maid. The black maid is told she's going to go work for this big movie star because, of course, Annabelle has her own huge mansion somewhere in Hollywood. And she's now going to work at a more middle-class place where this black maid had worked for half of the money or a third of the money and no days off because this is a way that they can highlight that she actually was a maid. You know, so we talked about uh, uh, last week, I talked about De Niro gaining weight in order to play this role. The idea of the press agent was, let's show you, this is the movie she was in. She actually was a maid. And that is really the the uh, the the comedic dynamic concept that she's going to be a maid in a home. It really makes no sense. I don't believe that's what press agents did. They didn't, you know, the publicity stunts were a lot less severe, and it was clear, you know, you know, this is a, an era of under undercover boss where people go ahead and put themselves incognito for a reason. But the idea that a, a first-tier Hollywood star would somehow become a maid and nobody would recognize her, this is really the 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 setup. It gives a good it gives a chance for Lucy and Jack Oakey to interact. Lucy at this point was about 27 years old. She looks young, glamorous. And she does a lot of physical comedy here. She and 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 you can relate to her. She is is you can tell she is playing a frustrated person. She you can you can see her emote in terms of her feelings. She's being hoodwinked by the press agent 
after she tries to fire him, he finds some old lady and he says, here, I'll give you $20 if you say you're my mother. Start crying and say you need an operation. She takes him back. Lucy gets taken in by his phony emotions uh, and she ends up agreeing to these ridiculous uh, harebrained schemes, which puts her in a situation that are essentially funny. She shows up at the house. There's a, a teenager whose voice is starting to crack. He's in he's in boxing shorts, being trained, training himself to box. And all of a sudden, this maid shows up, which, of course, is Lucy in high heels and in makeup. And, you know, he goes gaga for her. There's a, a, a brother-in-law uh, who's supposed to be, again, sort of like, you know, a Thomas Mitchell or a Frank Morgan character who's sort of like the eccentric brother-in-law who's a, an inventor. But again, there, there's very little... That plot doesn't go too far. Uh, he has some sort of invention, which is very unfunny. And somehow, kidnappers who are on the run with a tremendous amount of money that they've had, who are desperate criminals, end up being in this house together with Lucy, who is the maid. And I guess that's really the the the, the crux of the film. How is she going to get away from the criminals? And will her press agent come to save her? There's, of course, a, an Irish cop on the beat named Muldoon, who is completely clueless. The funniest part of the film to me was the plot that was hatched to save her from, from the kidnappers. For some reason, they don't want to call the police in on it because, you know, for, because of some plot device, she's already passed a, a, a bill that was part of the money that was passed to the kidnappers. So she's now uh, a suspect. So they can't call the police. So what they do is they uh, they call central casting and they get 50 actors to put on police uniforms. They got uh, Fritz Feld, who plays this Russian emigre director. And they, he probably has some of the funniest bits in the film because, you know, he wants realism, you know, and he's always screaming that like the Russian cinema, it has to be realistic. He wants to put a real film. And of course, he has a very, you know, and he was actually a German actor and he's having a lot of fun playing this frustrated Russian director who now gets his chance to film a live scene of a police attack onto a uh, suburban home. Which is where, which is how they're trying to rescue her. And of course, these are only actors, and they have blanks in their guns. And uh, as they climb the fences and as they storm the building, the kidnappers respond with actual live ammunition. Which means all of them are just all of them actually throw their ammunition. They throw their fake weapons away, and they are uh, in a state of terrible retreat, meaning. The film actually makes you think about, hey, every policeman in this movie is a fake. You know what I'm saying, right? In other words, here, let's get some fake policemen. Okay, but then the real policemen are also the fake policemen that that this movie is is foisting upon us. And everything is a blank. So really, th that was the to me a surrealistic moment. You know, let's let's film a movie with policemen storming the building and then let's have the real policemen show up who of course are also people from central casting who happen to look like they should be policemen as well so that to me again i don't know if the uh if stoloff and yivitz 
wanted this to happen. But to me, that was a moment that had a, a little bit of, of, of sublime humor. Silence, Sarah, that, that, not exactly, but if there was a fire going on somewhere in town, you know, they would go and film that. Right. They would actually take their cameras and use it as as, as part of the film. Remember, by 1938, things had developed to the point that I guess Hollywood was 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 ripe for satire. To me, if you love Lucy, this is a great film to watch because you can see the the nutshell of many of the things she eventually did on her 50s television series. Much of the you can see there's a a, a bunch of cute judo scenes. And she actually did learn a number of judo moves, and she actually does physics. She it wasn't done with a stunt double. She actually did with the judo that she was trained with. She actually flipped Jack Oakey. So there is a lot to like. First of all, again, you can see her 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 vulnerability in a real way, not the 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 forced vulnerability that I think you see on an I Love Lucy, and. Despite the flaws in her features, she's a very striking and, in many ways, a beautiful woman. And you can see why Lucy lived with that image of herself and why this was something that was difficult for her to, to, to let go of as she progressed in her life. And you also see her able to have witty comebacks. And, and, and I think, similar to these 1960s Lucy, she plays more in many ways of, uh, of, of, a, of a real character in terms of her conversations. She isn't just plotting something. In other words, the Lucy of the, of the 1950s sitcom is more the Jack Oakey character who's, who's, who's have all these harebrained schemes. She is more of a person who's being acted upon by fate, but still is able to do it with aplomb. She's still able to do it with a certain uh, attitude. And Oki did not want, they made one more film called The Tours of Annabelle, which is a sequel to this film. And if you, as the credits roll in the original film, the producers at RKO, which of course is the uh, the studio Lucy ends up buying, they actually said, watch for The Tours of Annabelle coming soon, which was, again, probably made pretty much at the same time. But Oki, although the reviews were pretty good, the movie made a decent amount, considering it was filmed in three weeks, Yitzchak. That's a pretty quick... Uh, in three weeks, they filmed everything in this film. And the, the film made a profit. And there was a plan to turn this into a series, similar to the, the series that Red Skelton and others had, uh, and, and, and highlighting this team of Lucy and Jack Oki. But after the second film, Oki said, look, you're not paying me enough. And Oki uh, pulled himself out. Uh, and that really was the end of... Uh, so Annabelle Ellison can never become uh, like Torchy Blaze or uh, or Blondie or any of the films or Andy Hardy. I, I don't know. They, they, they have a lot of work if she's going to make many movies. They made a Blondie. What did they make about 30 Blondie movies? Right. But again, that was the idea was that, that let's... That we have someone who is attractive and has comedic chops, and she's someone. And Lucy was an incredibly hard worker, and you know she wasn't a diva. She, they didn't have to like you know she her demands were not immense. And RKO thought that they could put together 
uh, as they did with John Blondell and others, uh, a series of films based on this character, which which for Lucy would be win-win. Because remember, the character is a movie star, right? So this is something which who gets into these zany situations. It never worked out, but I think in a way it lays the groundwork for the Lucy to come. I think it, it also, I would say, playing armchair psychologist, it also in a way haunts her because this is a movie star already, you know, as opposed to a house, a frumpy housewife. I think Lucy was haunted by her young, her youthful image. I think that that young Lucy in her 20s, um, who, who made stage door, who was with the Marx Brothers, who with the Stooges, who played the the doll, who was always, you know, when a, when a gangster would walk into the room, would say, what's a good looking girl like you doing here? I think this was something that she struggled with. That even though she showed in this film that she wasn't just a good looker, she didn't, like we saw, I mentioned her in the film Five Came Back. She plays this survivor of a plane crash. And of course, you know, because of the limited resources, only five of them will be saved. And of course, in that film, she plays a call girl, although it's she, the term is never used. I think this was something that, in a way, was a an image that she realized you couldn't keep forever was the type of thing that she always felt she could come back to and father time is, is not kind and 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 she really i think never burst through to even be someone like like Anne Sheridan she never even burst or even like Joan Blondell she had never really pushed through to the point that she had been an, an A-lister i think when she talked about it she felt that this was she she was clearly ensconced in B films, and that was okay for her at the time. But you know, she never really made it like Lana Turner or even Linda Darnell, who I mentioned before, um, or Hedy Lamar, any of those characters. She didn't she didn't have that intense beauty, and she didn't really have the the that acting ability either. There was something about her that, that she didn't have the Betty Davis eyes or the ability to emote in, in ways that you know could make you melt like you know like garbo or even like miriam hopkins but she clearly was someone who grew out of that system you have to say it's like really that she took what she had and she not only on radio but eventually turned it into something that made her in a way a bigger personality and influencer than any of those female stars i mentioned before and therefore, she really, as, as great as Betty Grable, Hedy Lamar, Lana Turner, you know, Ginger, even Ginger Rogers, you'd have to say, you know, if people, you ask people, who is more in, in your consciousness? Uh, Lucille Ball is is Lucy. She, you know, I mentioned her insecurities. Um, you know, she she came from a very uh, hard scrabble background and uh, she really you know pulled herself up from almost nothing. You know, at the end of her life, she was willing to do a TV movie about a bag lady called Stone Pillow, which I think uh, she was, uh, I think she was nominated for an Emmy for that. That was, I think, one of the last things that she ever did. I think that was owning up, you know, she died of, of, of I think she died of, of lung cancer. Uh, she smoked uh, like a chimney. I mean, obviously, Benson and Hedges, I think, was the original sponsor of the of the 1950s Lucy program. And even on the program, there was some 
product placement. I don't know if it was, you could tell what brand it was, but uh, you know, they smoked all the time. And of course, Lucy's voice became extremely hoarse through the years of smoking. Uh, she never was much of a singer, of course, as the show indicates, but the type of mellifluous, pleasant tones you're going to hear in The Three Little Pigskins and in um, The Affairs of Annabelle, if you listen to her in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you can hear that she can barely um, barely get through. I'd also recommend, if we are talking about Lucy, you know, her divorce was obviously uh, all over the what was the tabloids of the time. Uh, it was a very messy divorce. She end, She ended up, of course, marrying Gary Morton, a Jewish fellow. He was a, also sort of a second-rate actor who ended up becoming her business manager uh, and producer of some of the Lucy programs of the 60s. And uh, he becomes, of course, the stepfather to the children that were raised primarily by Lucy and Gary Morton. There is an episode uh, that you can see on YouTube of Password where Lucy and Gary are on, plus the two kids. And it's a great little episode. So as someone who brought, I can't have Sina for her, but I'm trying to, as, as, as she brought so much Hana to my uh, mother and grandmother, to my wife and my daughter, I have to say that, uh, you know, we we have to give her, of course, I think, the projectionist positive send-off here. Watch your step on the way out, my friends. Be well. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 